I'm Alex Wong, and the Wong Takes start now. Cheers, y'all. It is Tuesday, November 7th, 2017. New episode of the Wong Takes coming at you. It is the first podcast after daylight savings time ends, significant to some. Let's go. Topic number one, the world champion, who thought we'd be saying this, Houston Astros. What a series. I know it ended a week ago, but I don't think we're going to forget this World Series for a while. First of all, it went seven games. This is the first time we've had back-to-back seven-game World Series in a while. Um, There was all the excitement you could want. I mean, you saw pitchers that normally weren't giving up stuff like Kenley Jansen coming up. And giving up home runs, you had extra inning games like Game Two, where you were back and forth, back and forth, and then of course you had Game Five that was thirteen to twelve in ten innings, where it's back and forth, home run after home run. The crowds are excited. You got watch parties from both sides. Just the fan base is getting into it, especially the city of Houston after Hurricane Harvey coming together and pulling for this team. If this, if you're in Major League Baseball, I mean, this is all you could want in a series. Plus, everyone got to steal a taco because someone stole a base. I think that promotion is passed already. Anyway, a little bit of, I guess, talking about it. Man, this Astros team, they had the combination, I guess, this year of being really good, winning over 100 games in the regular season, and they were hot in the playoffs, which is what you need to do. They had the best offense in the league by far during the regular season, if we're talking about runs, if we're talking about average, if we're talking about depth in general. We saw during this World Series, they came through and was necessary that you need that power and that strength. You can't just get lucky in the playoffs. You need someone to hit. And their big hitters, they really came through during the World Series for this team. George Springer, who is the MVP of the series, had a home run in each of the last four games of the series and five total home runs in the series and eight extra base hits and 29 total bases, which is a World Series record, which is pretty remarkable. This is 100-some-odd years of baseball, and he set a new record. For total basis, which is like a singles, one base, doubles, two base, etc. Alex Bregman and Carlos Correa, both big players in the series, had five RBIs a pop. Altuve struggled, but he got key hits when it mattered, like in Game 5 with the three-run homer to tie the game. And all this hitting, it really helps when you've got a bullpen that can't convert. You've got to have hitting to overcome that. We saw that once again. I'm going to keep coming back to it in Game 5. When the bullpen couldn't get it done, the hitting came through. And as far as big picture, these Astros, we, I don't think anyone saw this coming a few years ago, except maybe as Sports Illustrated in 2014. Uh, I believe the writer's name was Ben Ryder. He had George Springer on the cover, who would eventually be the 2017 World Series MVP, and called the Astros the 2017 World Series champs. I guess it's, it's, a, it's a headline-grabby cover. It's a very flashy cover. But, I mean, the logic was sound. I mean, the Astros were a young team. They had good draft picks from those years of tanking. They actually, from 2011 to 2013, lost 324 games, which is 108 a year, which is pretty remarkable. We say losing 100 games is kind of like the rock bottom for a team. Imagine losing over 100 games a year for three straight years, and I believe in one of those years, they lost 111 games. So after the tanking, This shows that for teams that are in, quote-unquote, the process, like the 76ers who are starting to turn it around, these Astros who are in the process, now the Phillies and even the Giants, this is proof that teams that are in that process can't actually win games. Like this 
this World Series win almost seems like a justification of tanking because you're saying if you tank for a few years, look, look what these Astros did. And after all, the Astros, their tanking did help them because they won with their young stars. They didn't win with veterans, although veterans help, of course. But this this team, it's like Moneyball. It's like this. maybe this is the new strategy. Maybe teams are tanking. It's like the polarization of the NBA now where teams are either really good or really bad. And also, the Dodgers, they are not going anywhere. Their stars are young. They showed up in the series. Cody Bellinger, Corey Seager, Chris Taylor. And their pitching is deep with Clayton Kershaw, Alex Wood, Yu Darvish, Rich Hill. This is, of course, is assuming they can keep all those. But with the soft cap you have in baseball, there's no reason they couldn't as long as their owners are willing to, willing to cash out for those guys. And as I mentioned, their payroll, it's huge. Their payroll was the biggest in the league at the start of this year, which shows that even they, they paid more than the Yankees, for some perspective. And their manager is young. Dave Roberts is still inexperienced, so of course you're going to get second-guessed with everything you do in the World Series, but still, he was second-guessed a few times in the series, but as he gets older, he's going to gain more experience, and this Dodgers team looks like they're going nowhere but up. So that wraps up this baseball season, and we'll see him again in April. Next topic, college football week 10. Wow, it was a big week in college football after the release of the first college football playoffs rankings. First, we're going to talk about the fall of the Big Ten this week. Man, number 24, Michigan State beat number 7, Penn State, 27-24. And Iowa beat number 3, Ohio State, 55-24, which is pretty remarkable. As for Penn State, their tough schedule really came back to bite them in this game. As not only this game, but in the previous game when they lost to Ohio State, where you really saw that they really couldn't put together the same drives and the same explosive offense that they were able to when they were undefeated. As far as Ohio State, JT Barrett threw four interceptions after that miraculous game against Penn State. And his team, he couldn't lead his team back from a 14-point halftime deficit, which they were able to do against Penn State. Maybe they drew some of the energy out of them. And this sucks for them because this kills their playoff chances pretty much. If you have two losses in a conference, even as strong as the Big Ten, even as deep as the Big Ten East, this kills both of their playoff chances. And the only remaining possible playoff team from the Big Ten, I think, is number 9, Wisconsin, who is 9-0. However, their strength of schedule is really weak. They have no ranked teams on the schedule as of yet. I don't know what the release of the new playoff rankings that might add a ranked team. But right now, they, they've not, they haven't played a ranked team. And their toughest tests, however, are coming up in an Iowa team that just beat Ohio State and a Michigan Wolverines team that, of course, is always good under the leadership of Jim Harbaugh. Wisconsin's going to have to go undefeated to make the playoff. And in order to do that alone, they're going to have to beat a tough team in the Big Ten championship game, probably Ohio State. But it could be Michigan State, which would be kind of a, a blessing and a curse in that you don't get the strength of schedule, but you might have an easier opponent. But we'll see how that goes for Wisconsin. I personally don't think they'll crack the top six. I think they'll lose a game and maybe finish in that late single digits, early teams range. Now, the other game from this weekend that was just insane was number five Oklahoma beating number 11 Oklahoma State 62 to 52. Wow. In this game, there were 1,446 yards of total offense. 76 combined first half points and 114 combined total points. That's the Big 12 at its peak, honestly. And this game just had big play after big play after big play. There were nine touchdowns in this game of at least 30 yards. Think about that. Nine pretty much bomb plays. 
And of course, now for the implications of this game, it's really fitting that Oklahoma State's playoff chances, as this is their second loss, they, their playoff chances end in a shootout. And also, this is their quarterback, Mason Rudolph's last year, so that's horrible for him too. But we knew, kind of saw this coming, because Oklahoma State's defense has really struggled against good offenses. They gave up 44 to TCU, 34 to Texas Tech, and 39 to West Virginia. Now, you can survive in the Big 12 by doing that, but you have just have to outscore those teams and not lose. And plain and simple, they didn't do that, and they are not going to the college football playoff. As far as Oklahoma, who is sitting at number 5, this is a nice win for them, of course. You're beating the number 11 team in the country on the road in Bedlam. But I don't think this shows the committee enough to bump them up into the top four as of yet. Because all four top four teams won, Georgia, Alabama, Notre Dame, and Clemson. And despite the opponent that they played, Oklahoma simply just outscored Oklahoma State. And they only had one really good defensive quarter, which was the third quarter. And the committee is going to want to see Oklahoma win a game due to their defense, which they haven't really been able to do yet. But coming out of the Big 12... If you want to show to the committee that you're good enough to compete with the Alabamas of the world, you're going to have to play some defense. So as far as the Big 12 as a whole, we're not really it's not clear exactly who's going to come up at the top of this division and who's going to go to the playoff because the top 2 teams outright in this conference with one loss of pop each play each, or play each other next week, which is TCU and Oklahoma. That's going to be an insane game to cover. And Oklahoma State, Washington, or, uh, West Virginia, and Iowa State all have two losses within the conference. So as far as the conference championship game, we're still not sure yet because TCU and Oklahoma, one of them's got to lose. So who's going to play who and who's got the tiebreak? I think the Big 12 is also in a bind because these teams are just going to beat each other up as far as head-to-head with the TCU-Oklahoma game coming up and Oklahoma beating Oklahoma State and then ISU just coming in and beating everyone. It's going to be tough for a team in the Big 12 to make the college football playoff. And also, for some inexplicable reason, I forgot to do the scores, so why don't I do that real quick? Number 14, Auburn beat Texas A&M 42-27 ahead of their matchup with Georgia. That's going to be fun. Number 9, Wisconsin beat Indiana 45-17. Number 1, Georgia escaped South Carolina with a 24-10 win. Number 3, Notre Dame did the same with Wake Forest, winning 48-37. And number four, Clemson barely beat number 20, NC State, 38-31. to That's going to be an interesting team going down the stretch. Number eight, TCU beat Texas at home, 24-7. Number two, Alabama beat number 19, LSU, 24-10. Number 10, Miami escaped. Number 13, Virginia Tech with a 28-10 win. And number 12, Washington crushed Oregon, 38-3. So playoff picture is no really longer any clearer with this latest slate, but we're going to see next week. Okay, now on to a little somber topic. Some NFL quarterbacks are out. Andrew Luck, we're going to start with him. He was shut down for the season this week. I'm going to go back on the timeline a bit because this seems like he's had this injury forever. In the third game of 2015, just a long time ago, Andrew Luck got beaten up, and he ended up with a shoulder soreness the next day. This lingered on throughout the 2016 entire 2016 campaign, where the Colts claimed he was fine, but... He had that pain in the background, and that's why he struggled throughout the year. In January 2017, he had surgery to repair a torn labrum in his throwing shoulder, which was remnants of that first 2015 injury. And this Thursday, Andrew Luck was placed on injured reserve, which means he will miss the rest of the 2017 season. 
And not only does this injury suck for Andrew Luck and the Colts, but it also sucks for the league as a whole. Because I think, even though it's not one of the flashier injuries, I think this is another reason people are turning away from football. Because Andrew Luck, he's one of the few recognizable faces in the league with the gruffy voice and the beard and everything. He's, he's one of those nice, quiet guys like the NFL, that the NFL likes to show. I mean, he went to Stanford. He's been a good, consistent quarterback when he's, when he's healthy. But if he's not, you don't get to show that face to the league. Plus, the NFL just loses another good team and what's showing up to be a, a pretty interesting AFC South. The Colts are only, uh, I believe, 2-7 and seven this year. It might be 3-6. and six. But either way, you lose another good team that could be in that division and fight with the Jacksonville Jaguars and the Houston Texans and the uh, and the Tampa Bay Bucks, and the lingering injuries, these lingering injuries that that show up with guys that appear that they might have long term in uh, long term ramifications like concussions, they make people worry about the long term future of players and player safety, and maybe not want to put their own kids in football if they fear that they're going to get these long term injuries that are just going to stay with you even after you play. Now on to a less permanent injury but a horrible one and the last Deshaun Watson is out for the year this one really sucks on Thursday Deshaun Watson tore his ACL in a non-contact drill in practice according to ESPN's Adam Schefter quote Watson went down on a normal drill running a read option on a grass field close quote this man this really sucks because he wasn't doing anything crazy he's just running a read option running a normal play in practice and he just goes down and this shows the brutality of football it's another reason fans are leaving football because this is not even a contact injury. So this type of injury is not something that, I guess, you, you immediately think about football, but it's just another aspect of what football does to you over time because this type of injury could have come from years of wear and tear on that, on that ACL, and this just happened to be the straw that broke the camel's back, I think is what the saying goes. And also, onto the league itself, you lose a young star, you lose an exciting team, the Texans went 3-3 three and three with Watson under center, which was better than they were, and Watson was an electric quarterback. People really saw him as a rising star in the league. I think we all did. And in this cute, in his most recent game, or second most recent game, a quarterback battle with Russell Wilson in Week 8, he threw for 367 yards and four touchdowns, and he's a dual-threat quarterback as well. He's young, he's fast, he's exciting, people want to see him. And when you lose those faces of the league, it's not good for your league and your players and everything as a whole. And without Watson and J.J. Watt, who went down for the year, another bad injury to a face of the league, their Texans playoff hopes are pretty much done. And then we also saw Tom Savage was horrible in Game 1. He had a 7.8 quarterback rating in one half of play, so he's not going to be able to sustain the level of play to get the Texans up to that level that Deshaun Watson was able to get them to, where they were actually competing for a division title. And when I was talking about the division earlier, I meant the uh, Texans, not the Bucks. But either way, okay. <sighs> Moving on to the league itself. The NFL Week 9. The Washington Redskins beat the Seattle Seahawks 17-14 to in CenturyLink Field, which is a pretty rare thing that happens. This game was marked by the Seahawks' real inability to convert uh, opportunities despite having over 400 total yards of offense over 150 more than the Redskins had. They actually missed three field goals in the first half from Blair Walsh from 44, 39, and 49, all of them wide left. And what else, what else can you gain from this yardage beyond that these were makeable field goals is that they marched down the field to about the 20 to 30 yard line 
and when you can't convert and get the points, and as you do the math, one of these field goals would have tied the game. It really, it really sucks. And as far as the positives, despite struggling all game, Kirk Cousins completed a four-play, 70-yard, 35-second game-winning touchdown drive. It's a nice win for the Redskins. And as far as Kirk, this clutch gene that he's demonstrated here and the 28-point comeback last year that led to the You Like That, it shows why he's one of the biggest free agents in this coming offseason. So if you can... If you can lead a team in the clutch, even even if you don't do it that often, like a guy like Aaron Rodgers who's gotten a reputation for being clutch and his value goes up because of that, even if he isn't one of the clutchest quarterbacks in the league. But if you can do that occasionally and people see that, people are attracted, that's sexy. Now, going back to the Seahawks, they do lose a crucial home game and fall one game back of the Los Angeles Rams in the NFC West. Well, Los Angeles Rams, that's still weird to say. But either way, this is gonna be this is proving to be a tight division race. I don't think anyone expected this coming into the year with Jared Goff coming off the season he had last year and the move was still not coming out really well for the Rams. But the Seahawks, as far as this division, even though they're struggling right now, their offense does have better matchups coming up. They're playing Arizona, they're playing Atlanta, and they're playing the San Francisco 49ers who are 0-9. I think the Seahawks will get back on their feet. And I think they'll win this division still, but it'll be fun to watch toward when we get to the end of the year, when we get to the next season update. And the Washington Redskins, as far as the standings, pull within one game of the second wild card as they come out of their toughest part of the schedule. Still have a few more games left on that tough schedule, but their last six games, the teams in those games have a combined 35.4% win percentage at 17 and 31. So they, they're going to have a chance to make a run, not at the division title necessarily, being with the Eagles, but they will have a chance to make the playoffs. Next games we're going to talk about are a pair of 51-point scorers led by the top two picks of the 2016 draft. And the first pick, going to the Los Angeles Rams, was Jared Goff, who led the Rams to a 51-17 win against the New York Giants. Man, I don't think we saw this coming for the Giants. After winning those two Super Bowls a few years ago, they continue to struggle in this, in this lost season with, without Odell Beckham Jr., without some of their other weapons. They are now 1-7 or something like that. Man, they're going to have to either rebuild, and Eli Manning's maybe on the downslope of his career. I don't know what's up with them. And the Rams, we talked about them a little bit. They're surprisingly at the top of the division. Their offense is incredibly explosive with the addition of Sammy Watkins to Robert Woods and their other wide receivers, and then Todd Gurley, of course, and Jared Goff, who's really come into his own. And we see what they're capable of with this 51-17 win, putting their offense and defense together, and... I don't think they're going to win the division, but I think they'll get the wild card, and they really have that recipe to go far in the playoffs where we've, we can see them put together a good game on both ends. Now, the other 51-point scorers, Carson Wentz, the second pick of the draft out of North Dakota State, beat the Broncos 51-23. This He's got a ton of weapons. He's got another bunch of great wideouts. Alshon Jeffrey came over from the Bears, and he's their number one. Nelson Aguilar is in his only his third year, but he's continued to emerge with his speed. And then Brent Selleck represents the veteran presence. He's reliable as always. And then Corey Clement scored three total touchdowns in his most recent game and has really come out like a good boomer bust Ted Ginn type guy, which you kind of need in an offense to get that speed on this edge. And then, of course, they just added Jay Ajayi, making that passing attack even more lethal by setting it up with the play action. And then Carson Wentz's decision-making and talent around him, man, now he's been able to lead them to an 8-1 and record, which is the best in the NFL. This Eagles team, I like this Eagles team. 
Uh, I saw, I think it was Brian Clark on SportsCenter talking about a, a Pittsburgh-Philadelphia Super Bowl. And without really an emerging super team in the AFC like the Patriots usually are, maybe we don't talk about them as much because they're just so good consistently. But we haven't really seen a team that's dominating the AFC, so that really could happen. I don't know if that will happen, but I guess we'll see. So that wraps up the major topics for the day. Let's get to some fan questions. First up, from Evan. How do you feel about the NFL suspending Mike Evans for one game while A.J. Green only got a fine? Should the NFL be more consistent? Is this a recurring issue with other players in the NFL and their policy? Okay, let's take this line by line. So first off, the suspension. I think A.J. Green should have also gotten a suspension. I might be a little biased because of fantasy, but nonetheless, both he and Mike Evans committed a sort of violent act. Like Mike Evans, he blindsided a guy, which of course is horrible, could lead to significant injuries. But A.J. Green did also try to choke someone and threw a bunch of punches, and I personally think that if one of those punches lands, like he knocks Jalen Ramsey square in the helmet, he's getting a suspension because the optics of that is horrible. So his incompetence as a boxer probably saved him from a suspension here, and I don't think that should be the case. I think you should judge on intent, not like what happened. As far as the NFL's consistency in punishment, it is really hard to measure consistency. To be fair, just ask any referee. But I do think the fine or the fine versus the suspension line, I think that should be more defined. Because like in the NBA, you have the flagrant one and uh, two rule, where it's kind of like you have. Uh, too excessive contact, and then you have like excessive and extreme, or some. There's an extra word in there that allows you to like physically point to something to say, okay, is this that? I don't. The NFL might have that for certain things, but we don't see anyone pointing at certain rules when the NFL is thinking about whether to eject or suspend or suspend versus fine a guy and saying, okay, did he match this qualification? So I think next CBA or whenever they renegotiate this kind of stuff, they should add something like that. For, for this. Now, as far as the NFL's punishments in general, I'm going to get a little broader here. Their punishment scheme is weird because when you if we think about why do we punish people, it's for two reasons. It's to reform the individual, so it's kind of like an internal punishment, what, what, why you like put people in confinement, and also to deter other people, which is why we, why we put people in jail so other people also see, hey, I don't want to end up, like, that's why we make jail so bad. I don't want to end up like that, so I'm not going to do it. And I don't think the NFL works on either front as far as punishing people. Like, here's an example of bad trying to reform individuals. The last five domestic violence suspension links were four games, three games, six games, four games, and six games. Now, this is for beating someone. This is for hurting a partner or a spouse, which is unarguably bad. And in 2017 alone, five players have been suspended at least 10 games, more than all those domestic violence cases, for substance abuse, which could be marijuana, could be PEDs, but arguably a less severe, deserves a less severe penalty than beating someone. So when players get suspended for much less for domestic violence than you get for smoking a joint like Josh Gordon did, and he's been out for like three years, you lessen the significance of domestic violence and you kind of push the wrong agenda on people. You're saying like, okay, if you get, if you hurt a woman like Ezekiel Elliott here, like you, you maybe you'll get to play for 10 days or I mean 10 games before you actually get suspended and maybe your suspension will get pushed off a whole year. 
But if you if you fail a drug test, nope, you're automatically out for like five to ten games. What the message is that sending to your players? And also with this punishment in particular, with the AJ Green and the Mike Evans stuff, you're also not really telling other players like you you shouldn't be choking people on the field just because they trash talk you. You should, you can trash talk back or whatever, but like don't use racial slurs and don't like physically attack people. And through these punishments, you kind of show the players that you can get you can get away with more. And angry players are going to feel more of an incentive to start fights if they get mad because it's like, hey, as long as I don't like actually hurt him, I'm not going to get suspended. And you increase the, the level of chippiness to a point where it's kind of like, okay, maybe this is not good for a league anymore because we're actually trying to like hurt each other outside of the actual sport itself on here. So NFL... Uh... Now another question from Noah, is Calvin Benjamin in for a big week? Hmm. Well, Calvin Benjamin just went to Buffalo. I don't think he has a good week this week. He faces a good defense. According to ESPN, the Saints have allowed the third fewest fantasy points per game to receivers over the last six weeks. And he's also coming into a system where there's already an established number one option, which is LaShawn McCoy, and we know they're going to feed him the ball 20 times a game. So he's not going to get the same touches he was able to get in, in uh, Carolina, where Jonathan Stewart was their number one back, but he he was kind of one A with Christian McCaffrey. He was a passing down back, so he was already they're already running pass plays anyway. However, the fact that he is clearly the top receiver in Buffalo, who has one of the worst passing attacks in the league, and he's got a decent quarterback, Tyrod Taylor, and his talent and Kelvin Benjamin's size and talent in the red zone kind of make him a boomer bust guy, where if he doesn't score a touchdown, you're not going to be pleased with the performance, but there's a chance they might just throw to him twice from the one-yard line. So, boomer bust guy, I wouldn't start him if I had some wide receivers that I know have a high floor. But if you're short on wide out, sure, go ahead, start him. Okay, now let's move on to the quick take. Full disclosure, I read this thing about a minute before I'm coming on, because I don't want to just do this completely off the cuff. But former Phillies and Blue Jays pitcher Roy Halladay has died today in a plane crash at age 40 over the Gulf of Mexico. He had an illustrious career as an eight-time Cy Young winner. He had a 2.97 career ERA. He had a postseason no-hitter. He won the Cy Young Award in both the American League as a member of the Blue Jays and the National League as a member of the Phillies. This is a tough loss for the baseball community because he had a good pitcher and a great guy. It's tough. We've really seen guys like Jose Fernandez, who tragically died in a boating accident before the before the beginning of last or this season. It's good to see the baseball community come together and support these guys, support the family. Even though Roy Halladay isn't pitching anymore, he was a major part of baseball history in the last decade, and it's tough to see him go. But rest in peace, Roy Halladay, and. That wraps up this baseball season again. Okay, thank you for listening to The Long Takes. You can send questions to the show on the Patreon patron feed or to our email. You can check out the podcast online with the website bit.ly slash thewongtakes. Or if you want to type in a long URL, thewongtakes.wixsite.com slash thewongtakes. I'll probably get rid of saying that in the next few weeks. Patreon at patreon.com slash thewongtakes, or you can email the show with questions, comments, concerns at thewongtakes at gmail.com. Thank you so much for listening, and I will see you next week.